This episode is brought to you by Audible. Get your free audiobook download by visiting audiblepodcast.com slash best. Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, The Daily Show, The Young Turks, The Onion Radio News, Ring of Fire, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, NPR, and The Rachel Maddow Show. of the healthcare discussion in Washington dominated by the various compromises of Democratic lawmakers, the corporate media's default position has generally been to cheer on these concessions to the right. But how do you present such a strategy so it looks like common sense rather than selling out? In part by making words mean just what you want them to mean, a la Lewis Carroll. Take the November 10th New York Times headline, Trick for Democrats is Juggling Ideology and pragmatism. The lead sentence tells readers that, quote, Democrats have displayed a striking degree of pragmatism in seeking to push the health care bill through Congress, embracing or rejecting ideological considerations as needed to keep the legislation moving, close quote. The paper couldn't be clearer that ideology and pragmatism are in conflict. But look at how those terms are being defined. In the case of health care reform, the Times means by ideology ideology, policy ideas like single-payer or a truly robust public plan that are popular with voters and that would be more likely to reduce the costs of the health care system and cover more people. By pragmatism, the paper means concessions and trade-offs Democrats have made in an attempt to win conservative and industry support, excluding coverage for abortion services, for example. In other words, things that won't lead to reduced costs or increased coverage, the ostensible goals of the reform. The paper's labels wind up saying much more about their worldview than their vocabulary. It's no surprise that many of the loudest media voices on the right have been making some of the most ridiculous comments throughout the debate over health care. Fox News Channel's Bill O'Reilly might be more subdued than his Fox colleagues Sean Hannity and Glenn Beck, which says more about them than it does about him. But on November 4th, O'Reilly complained about a proposed tax increase in the House bill. Quote, Nancy Pelosi and her far-left crew want to raise the top federal tax rate to 45 percent. That's not capitalism. That's Fidel Castro stuff, confiscating wages that people honestly earn, close quote. Well, by that reckoning, of course, Fidel Castro or someone like him must have been the president of the United States in the mid-1980s when the top federal tax rate was 50 percent and for all of the 1970s when it was 70 percent, and most certainly from 1950 to 1963 when it was 91 percent. It seems the no-spin zone is a no-history zone as well. Once again, to America's longtime love affair with health care reform. 
The House of Representatives has released its version of the health care reform bill, and Republican members don't appear to, what's the word I'm looking for, likey it. <laughs> so on Tuesday, when representatives were given just 60 seconds each to comment, well, you can imagine that depth of argument gave way to creativity of presentation. Mr. Speaker, it came on two pages. It has withstood the ages. <gasps> Ooh. <laughs> A rhyming riddle, I love thee. It came on two pages. Who is Mark Foley? Move on. Two great religions does it claim. The law of the Ten Commandments is its name. A current writing, 1,990 pages long, has a socialist philosophy that is all wrong. Ah! <laughs> Bravo! House of Representatives limerick guy? <laughs> ah, the Ten Commandments. So you're saying that this health care reform bill, while long, doesn't stack up to the founding doctrine of Judeo-Christian monotheism dictated but not read by a God, <laughs> a.k.a. Jehovah, Yahweh, etc., etc. Uh, Mr. Poe, if that's your standard of legislation, uh, you're not going to be passing a lot of bills that are coming across there, eh? <laughs> so there were grand objections to the bill, but there were also some relatively nitpicky complaints. Mr. Speaker, yesterday a uh, member of the Mennonite Amish community called my office. An Amish guy called your office. <laughs> you sure that's not some local morning zoo prank? <laughs> hey, how you doing? It's Jebediah and the piglet. Point, point. Don't vote for that bill. Oh, you guys got splashed. <laughs> Boom, take that, Amish community. <laughs> uh, they're probably not going to see that joke, are they? <laughs> Actually, what Bartlett is saying is that under the bill, the Amish community would be penalized for not taking part in a nationalized health care system. The members of this community do not buy health care insurance, and they don't cost the taxpayer anything. One thing is very clear to me, that those who wrote this bill didn't communicate with this community. This is a big community. Oh, yes. Who will cover Butter Churner's wrist? <laughs> Two Amish jokes. Boom, boom. Oh, no. going to be passionately inflamed. I better check my email for complaints. <laughs> of course, that's the kind of silly stuff you get in a 60-second debate. But when the representatives aren't limited by time constraints, that's when the bill's opponents can focus on more critical elements of the health care reform bill. The last count I heard, this 15... 1,500-page bill. It's 1,990 pages. 1,995-page socialist health bill. It's 2,000 pages long. With the 40-page amendment, it's 2,030 pages. Like a 2,032 page. The entire 2,036 pages. <laughs> it's 850,000 pages long. I heard one day the bill caught on fire. It burned for 30 days and 30 nights. Blacking out the sun. And that, Billy, is how the dinosaurs died. As the stories of the length of the bill grew, the stories grew, and so did the bill's legend.
I heard it weighs 20 pounds. It's almost nine inches tall. It's a foot tall. And more than 70 pounds. 70 pounds? <laughs> what, did they print it on that fat baby from Colorado? <laughs> that is a fat baby! Mm. Mm. Who's got the engraved health care reform bill on them? Who's got the For more on the health care bill, let's go out to Capitol Hill Bureau Chief Jason Jones. Jason, the House is preparing. The House is preparing to move this bill to a formal floor vote. You've obviously been doing a lot of behind-the-scenes digging. What are you hearing from the Republicans about their objections behind the scenes? Yeah. Uh, bill big. <laughs> right, I think we got that impression. But, but again, the size of it doesn't necessarily mean that it's flawed. Bill, bigger than rock. <laughs> bigger than rock, Bill, kill freedom. <laughs> but our, our current free market approach is, is leaving an awful lot of people uninsured, and it's, it's driving costs to the roof. Huh? <laughs> I mean, the Democrats just don't seem to have the discipline or, or balls to just propose a single strong reform bill that won't be so bloated and then stick by it. We get this, this bloated Frankenstein Yay! bill. And their own bill, the Democrats' own bill, becomes a symbol of their bureaucratic incompetence, thus undercutting people's confidence in the Democrats' ability to even manage such a system, even though we already do it with Medicare. scare tactics. She's done this before. Look at how many times she mentions fear and then get a load of the last thing she says which will blow you away. Here we go. Everywhere I go in my district people tell me they are frightened. They are frightened about what is happening in this country. They fear for the future of our country. What they're talking about is that they fear for our freedoms and they fear for the principles that formed this country and have always been the basis on which we've operated. I share that fear, and I believe they should be fearful. And I believe that the greatest fear that we all should have is, to our freedom comes from this room, this very room, and what may happen later this week in terms of a tax increase bill masquerading as a health care bill. 
I believe we have more to fear from the potential of that bill passing than we do from any terrorist right now in any country. We have more to fear from reforming our health care system so that hopefully you all get better health care for less for lower prices, hopefully. We have more to fear from that than any terrorist in any country. Presumably that includes Osama bin Laden, Ayman al-Zawahiri, the people who did the 9-11 attacks. No, uh, health care reform, trying to make the health care system better, is worse than terrorism, worse than 9-11. Look, that's extremism. That's backed by nothing. No substance whatsoever, no facts, just absolute fear-mongering. But in case it wasn't clear, I, I lost count at one point, but I believe she said fear or frightened ten times in under a minute. Ten times. I am very afraid. You should be very afraid. Afraid. Fear. Fear. Frightened. Be frightened. The Democrats are coming. The Democrats are coming. They're going to try to improve your health care. Fear. Fear. It's worse than terrorists. That's exactly what the current day Republican Party has to offer. That's a wing nut. That's extremism. And if you can't tell the difference between that and Alan Grayson, well, Either you're being disingenuous, and you know the difference, you're just afraid to say it. Or I can't help you because you lack logic, logical reasoning ability. And uh, I don't know, get an education? I don't know. Try to help get some help for yourself. But you can't compare that to anything that the Democrats do. And that is what the Republicans do day in, day out. That's all they got for you. Fear. I'm not Onion Radio News, I'm Doyle Redland. Fire hot, much hot, no touch fire, too hot touch. Water come from sky, rock come from ground, but no one know fire come from. Man make fire, only man no secret of fire. Fire much good for tribe, fire make food so food not have maggot. Fire make man warm, but if touch fire, fire hurt. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News. You know, we've got Republicans calling our president a monkey, a socialist, Hitler, Lenin, Stalin, illegal immigrant. I could go on forever. You have the Republicans doing that. But when a Democrat says, look, you know, we're not going to show up to a, a we're not going to show up to a gunfight with a knife anymore. You have Democrats. I mean, this guy, Earl Blumenauer from Oregon, 
Oregon Democrats saying, oh, my God, you know, this is a corrosive process. we got to be careful. It's disgusting to me. And it's disgusting to most progressives that, that uh, we've all waited for somebody to kind of pull the sword out of the stone. So congratulations. What's your reaction to, uh, to, to the reaction from your own party? Well, thanks. I, I think most people have been very, very supportive. It, it, it's just that the media calls all 250 Democrats in the House and tries to get one or two to say something that's a little bit uh, negative. That's right. the way they play the game. And sometimes we all get trapped by that. And it is sad that uh, one of the biggest worries that any progressive ever has is being fragged. Right, exactly. You know, Earl Blumenauer is in a district. I mean, that look, Air America is hot as acid in his own district. You know why? Because this show does, Ring of Fire does so well out there because we say what Earl Blumenauer probably doesn't say. We say the same things you say. So let, let's get right to it. First of all, let's begin with where this all really started. It was, your, was your concern about the fact that we have to have health care reform? Right? Yes, I mean, right. Okay, so, so let, Everybody in America needs to be able to see a doctor when he or she gets sick. I can't think of a simpler principle than that. Yeah, okay, and so you go down the list here. I mean, you, you, put, this, you, put, this so, you, you put this so well, you, so concisely, that anybody who looks at your site can understand what's real and what's not real. It, number one, if you have health insurance, you can keep it, period. Uh, number two, uh, this bill, if you change jobs, you're going to be able to keep your health insurance. If you lose your job, you're going to be able to keep health insurance. You can't be, not, be denied coverage for preexisting problems. They can't legislate you out of, uh, out of coverage. I mean, you, it's very clear that this is a reform that anybody with a brain would say, yeah, that's pretty good for us, right? Right. It's the people against the insurance companies. The, the only organized uh, opponents at this point uh, to this bill are the insurance companies and their wholly owned subsidiary, the Republican Party. Yeah. Now, let me ask you something. You keep hearing the insurance companies come. I, I have to do this talking head thing on Fox News several times a week, and it's me versus, you know, four right-wing talking heads, which is fun. I mean, I like doing it. But the new, the new, the new stupid speak is, well, golly, the insurance industry is only making a 2.5% profit margin. That is really deceptive, isn't it? I mean, Well, it's, it's funny they say that because one specific executive in the insurance industry, the head of United Health, uh, made half a billion dollars one year. Yeah, yeah. And, and maybe the reason why their profit margin is, is so low, if in fact it is so low, and I don't agree that it is. Well, it's not. First of all, that that's a lot. they're taking money yeah. from you and me that's supposed to be used for health care, and they're sticking it in the pockets of their senior executives. Yeah. Well, I mean, any way you cut it, the, the money they bring in is in excess of what it, – it, it's very close to what the oil industry makes. I mean, it, the, the numbers, whole conception that we should feel sorry for the insurance companies is pathetic. Of course we, it is. We've set up a website called namesofthedead.com where people can write in or people can just see – Actual human beings who lost their lives in America, names, pictures, dates, stories, names of, of the dead, people who lost their lives in America because they couldn't get access to health care. Yeah. And, and I'm supposed to read those, ignore those, and then think about what we need to do to strengthen the insurance industry? That's ridiculous. Well, the, the point is the insurance industry doesn't – it's not that they just have a great PR system. They have an incredible Madison Avenue PR slick you know, silk stocking setup. They also have the best, I mean, you know, five to one lobbyists for people where they have five lobbyists for every congressman uh, on the Hill. But on top of that, 
they have a media that simply is so damned afraid to actually tell the stories about the insurance industry that, that at the end of the day, sometimes they end up looking like a victim. This is, this is an organization, 400% increase in premiums in the last 10 years. In the last 10 years, 400%. So well, we're supposed to feel sorry for them? Uh, yes, uh, that is the game plan of the other side, that we need to feel sorry for the poor, poor insurance executives who are actually the rich, rich insurance executives. The success of our website, and, and I took some of these stories down and read them on the floor of the House, uh, the success of our website is, is that it shows America, America. There are, there are people in this country, lots of people, who are dying because they can't get health care. That's what really is important. And when you know Americans hear that Americans are dying, they care about that. According to a Harvard study, 44,789 Americans die every year because they can't get health care. And if you take two people in America who are exactly identical physically, same age, same height, same uh, race, same gender, uh, same weight, uh, same smoking habits, and one of them has insurance and the other one doesn't, the one without insurance is 40% more likely to die. That's a lot more important to me than the, the, the profit margin of insurance companies. is from Senator Joe Lieberman. I don't feel like wiggling. The senator was talking about just how inflexible he will be as what major bill goes to the Senate. Um, the health care plan? Yes, health care, in fact. It was tough in the end to get a health care reform package through the House. Nancy Pelosi had to promise the blue dog Democrats things blue dogs like, like blue dog biscuits. A chance to ride around in her limo with her heads out the window. <laughs> Belly rubs in the House floor. And Dennis Kucinich won an assurance that aura massage would be included in the coverage. But all that excitement from getting the bill passed in the House was dashed this week by the Senate. Lieberman, as you heard, promised he would not wiggle on his promise to filibuster the bill. In fact, it seems that the only way that Joe Lieberman will ever support health care is to create a way in which he can betray somebody by doing it. <laughs> you know, one of my first... Uh paid jobs as a kid. I, I talked to a friend's dad and, uh, and let me help him move. And uh, I was pretty much in the way the entire day. And at one point, and this has stuck with me my entire life, he said, son, you are a pimple on the butt of progress. <laughs> and, and I thought of that in relation to Senator Lieberman this, this week. It seems like he, he has made it his, yeah. his job to be that boy I was. Yeah. 
<laughs> the problem is uh, that Harry Reid, of course, now has to round up 60 votes to stop a filibuster in health care reform. He's making deals left and right. For example, in order to get Ben Nelson of Nebraska on board, Reid has agreed to have the federal government move the entire state of Nebraska to Florida for the winter. <laughs> Let's tell your story a little bit. I, to me, it's a great story. I hear, hear you defeated a four-term incumbent Republican, Rick Keller, down in Florida, Orlando, Florida, hugely, hugely conservative area. Uh, you're a practicing attorney, and, and the, I love your specialty. Your specialty was that you would go after the the contractors who were stealing from American taxpayers. People, uh, you know, that that would the, the old thing about charging. $10,000 for a $5 hammer. Those are the people that you went after. Uh, the Custer battles. I remember uh, where what you did was we were able to recover for the government $15 million for sham inspections or $10 million uh, where a contractor had only spent $3 million but, but, but billed the taxpayers uh, $10 million. You, you've, you've been down the road with corruption, haven't you? Listen, I, I was the prosecuting attorney for every single case that was being litigated in federal court against war profiteers in Iraq when I was elected. And my fundamental motivation was that I saw the absolute worst side of the war. That's why I ran for Congress. I, all the things that people hear about now, about soldiers being electrocuted in their own showers because of contractors, literally being found guilty of homicide but getting no punishment whatsoever from the Bush administration, these are things that I saw right from the beginning of the war. Mm. And they got gag orders. I mean, you know how this works because you've done similar kinds of work. They got gag orders against me, gag orders against my clients uh, to try to prevent people from finding out what was actually going on in Iraq. Yeah, the, pow the power of corporate America, when you start going after the people that you were going after as a private lawyer, first of all, what did you bring? You, you brought your Harvard education, you brought your Harvard law degree, but most important, most importantly, you brought, uh, you brought a willingness to put yourself out there. Every time you confront one of these major corporations, it's, you know, you're at risk. I mean, people don't realize that. You personally are at risk as a lawyer, aren't you? Well, certainly they do everything they can to change the subject. I, well, that's what I, I, mean. I, I mean. Time after they, time, they, throw... they would attack me personally. And, it, frankly, it was great preparation for fighting Republicans in politics because they do the same thing. I say that America needs better health care, better education, better jobs. And the Republicans say I'm crazy and ugly and stupid. Yeah. Okay. So now, now where we are is we, um, the 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 Democrats understand. I, by the way, I interviewed Barney Frank a couple of weeks ago. He spoke very highly of you. Said, you know, basically, I wish we had more Alan Grayson's. Barney understands the importance of getting in front of a microphone and saying what is on his mind, and then not apologizing for it after he says it. He understands the same thing that you that you understand. But why is it that the progressive movement has so few Alan Grayson's and so few Barney Franks? What in the hell is going on in our in, in the progressive movement? I, I I think what's happened is that there's never been before now a demonstration that, of people power. You, you do have lobbyists all over Washington, like White on Rice. Right. And uh, 
never before on our side, on the progressive side, have people really asserted themselves. Uh, they did so, I think, to some extent during the Obama campaign, but then it fell off, and it hasn't happened since then, even though we now have control of the House, the Senate, and the White House. So what happens is uh, the people who are elected Democrats end up spending too much time with lobbyists and, and thinking too much about what they need to do for their next election rather than hearing directly from the people. And what we're doing is we're creating a new model. Our what? money bomb is now over $350,000. This is organized effort to have contributions at one time. And none of these contributions were large. It's $10 from one person, $50 from another. Right. We're demonstrating that there is a different model that one can use in order to do what's necessary to get reelected. Look at me. I, I'm the first Democrat to, to represent my district in 34 years. It looked impossible when you were running, Alan. It looked impossible. But, but what I knew then and what I know now is that you can't beat a Republican by being one. You have to stand <laughs> up for a better right life on. for ordinary people. So why is it that we have so many progressive Democrats that think that they want to look like a Republican? Why, why is it that we hear from a guy like Earl Blumenauer, you know, that, that is up in Oregon, who's so disconnected with the anger and the frustration that's out there in the progressive movement? Why, why, why can't they connect to that? We need to have a successful model. People need to see that a Democrat like me can run in a district like mine and win and then win again. And, and you have a properly financed campaign in a situation where we're going to need $2 million or more just to be able to, to, to fight back against the Republicans. They spent $2 million last year to keep me out of office. Now God only knows what they'll spend this year to try to throw me out. Okay, so you ha uh, part of this is the media card. The media card, and here's, here's my observation. Let me just tell you something, and just for what it's worth, <laughs> outside coming in. The reason that uh, that I that I show up on Fox is not because I guess that I'm not I'm not going to change anybody's mind, but it's like going at, at, for the first time. You have the the conservatives that are hearing a voice that sounds like them. You understand what I'm saying? It's it's as caustic, it's as volatile, it is as bombastic as they are. It works. It's it's important that we have a progressive movement that has those voices, and I, I'm hoping that you don't lose your your edge because of criticism coming from your own party. Well, look, as long as there are people in America who die, literally die, because they can't see a doctor. I don't think I'll be losing my edge anytime soon. Yeah. Okay, let me ask you something. Uh, what, uh, you know, this, this contractor fraud issue, I loved what you did where the, you had all these Republicans and Democrats, again, getting sucked into the same thing, going after ACORN. Well, we know that there's this effort. M Michelle Bachman came out and said we have this e effort to defund, to, to make liberal support organizations disappear. So, that's, they, so they begin with ACORN. You come out and say, look, if it's good for ACORN, it's good for all the contractors, right? Yeah, and we've made a lot of progress with that because the Constitution says you can't have a bill directed against one organization just to so, so lay the So lay the program out. I mean, in other words, you had, they wanted to fund ACORN because they said that they did something fraudulent. Well, what about all the government contractors? Isn't that kind of where you went with that? Well, that's my point. That's right. What they did was they slapped together this bill uh, without even thinking or maybe even reading their own bill uh, in which they went after ACORN, but they had to make it a little broader than that. So they put in that, that they would debar, cut off the funding for any organization that submitted a false federal form. Uh, well, it's not that hard to find organizations that submit a false federal form. You're basically talking about all 10 of the top 10 government contractors in, in America and all the way down. 
So what they ended up doing inadvertently by trying to defund ACORN is that they're on the verge of defunding the entire military-industrial complex. You know, <laughs> okay. they, they, Republicans okay. do great things by accident, <laughs> only by accident, though. I mean, I look forward to seeing what, uh, what they're going to do in, to inadvertently um, bring about world peace and hunger. <laughs> Let me ask you something. What what I what I love about what you did here, it was just it was clever. It was you know you took uh, you took this thing called extension of remarks, which is where you have the right to go in and explain kind of the history of what happened and what it means. Correct? Yes, but so, for a limited period, and we were very very quiet until the last day, and then we dropped the bomb on them. Yeah. By saying that what the bill really means is that we're going to be defunding all the crooks. Yeah. And so what what that means is, and you point it out very well, you say, look, you can't just go after ACORN constitutionally. I mean, there's an equal protection issue that we have to be, you know, we, we have to be aware of. And you can't just say, I'm going to go after ACORN without going after the Halliburtons and the Blackwaters and, you know, the KBRs and all the other, you know, thugs that are stealing hundreds of billions of dollars from American taxpayers. Basically, that's it, isn't it? Sure. I mean, the Constitution specifically says you can't have a bill of attainder. A bill of attainder is legislation that's directed toward punishing one particular entity. We have division. I mean, the Constitution says what it says. It's perfectly clear on this point. But the underlying theory is that we have, uh, we have different branches of government. And it's for the judiciary, not the legislature, to decide who's guilty. You can't have trial by legislature, no matter how much the Republicans seem to want it. Please, if you're listening to this broadcast... Do the progressive movement a favor. Do yourself a favor. Put something behind the voice of Congressman Alan Grayson. And do you have a play? Where are you raising money for your next campaign? I, I, the Republicans are going to come at you with so much money, it's going to be obscene. So how, how does somebody who wants to help in this race help you? Well, we have two websites. One is congressmanwithguts.com, which is the basis for our already very successful money bomb. And the second website is graysonforcongress.com, which has a full collection of the videos that we've done, including one that has already had over 3 million views on my oversight hearing concerning the Federal Reserve. Mm. So I, 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 I want people to come to see what kind of work we're doing and, and yes, to support the campaign because uh, we have to show them that people power works. We have to show them that populism is popular. Representative King, we're both Republicans, Dementia from South Carolina. We'll do that one first. Uh, some simple questions, uh, one of them of which is, do you know how many uninsured you have in your district? Now, look, I, we're going to get into a discussion of whether that's a fair question or not. But first, let's watch Senator Dement's answer. Clip number 11. 
But even now, you don't know how many people are uninsured in South Carolina? I don't think anyone. Oh, how many are uninsured? Yeah. Well, no one is going to go without health care because everyone can show up at the at hospital. The, uh, That's just not the most efficient way to do it. So can you show up if, at the hospitals if you've got a chronic heart condition and, you know, the ER will give you uh, some kind of Lipitor or uh, cholesterol reduction drug? If you have any type of event, you can go to the emergency room, but it's not the best Right, way. it's got to be an emergency event, so they can't take care of people that need dialysis for... for uh, well, if you go in and need dialysis, you'll get it. Uh, but that, again, we, we can do a lot better with that, and my goal all along... Yeah. Uh, in other words, what? What? They got the hospitals. If you have an event, oh, you got a heart condition, no problem. Once you have the heart attack, we'll take care of you. <laughs> By the way, the answer is 19.4% uh, of his state's population is uninsured. That's a whopping number, man, 19.4%. Now, what's fair and what's unfair? Um, look, asking the question is fair, but if he doesn't know the answer, I'm actually not going to hold it against him. I mean, yeah, I know he's a senator, but he can't carry around a book with all facts about uh, South Carolina, let alone all the health care facts. Uh, ideally, it'd be great if he knew, but he doesn't know. Uh, that's not my problem with his answer. It, look, it, how would I answer it if I didn't know it? I'd say, hey, you know what? Uh, thanks for asking that. It's a good question. Let me find out for you. I should know, but right now, off the top of my head, I don't. But let me find out for you, and I'll get back to you. Give me your email, okay? That's how a representative, in this case a senator, should answer the question. Instead, he says, what? So they don't have insurance? Check it in the damn hospital. That's not a right answer. Now, if you think that answer was bad, wait till you get a little Representative Steve King. Same question. Let's watch clip 12. How many people are uninsured in your district? In my district? The, uh, the people in, this, in, in my district are calling for freedom. They're saying... You don't know don't how many people are uninsured? I'm taken away by somebody with a Senator King, I, I need to press you on I'm this. Do you, you know, know how many people are uninsured? The question is, my people want freedom. I got to go. <laughs> uh, how many people in your district are uh, uninsured? Um, they want freedom. I'll see you later. <laughs> That's not an answer. I mean, come on, it's a joke. I mean, like Michelle Bachman today, did they do the teabag protest, and she called it the Super Bowl of freedom. <laughs> come on, come on, come on, come on. I mean, this is absurd. What is lower prices or higher prices in healthcare? What does it have to do with freedom? What is, you know, what they do is they do these incredible long stretches. Okay, they say if um, you know you have to pay uh, less for health care, that means that's hurting private insurance. And if you're hurting private insurance, that means you're driving more people to a public option. And a public option is government. And since it's government, government by definition must mean less freedom. And, and then if freedom was in a movie with Kevin Bacon, that goes to show you that you see we're on the side of freedom and you're against freedom. That doesn't make no kind of sense. And you know what else government does? It provides an army which guarantees our freedom, right? I mean, that's what Republicans tell me all the time. Freedom isn't free. It's paid for by the government. <laughs> right? So they're stretching all this. The bottom line on all of this, it ain't got nothing to do with freedom. It ain't got nothing to do with any of that. It has to do with the people paying Steve King, Jim DeMint, Michelle Bachman's bills. And those are corporate lobbyists who want to make more money. That's what this is about. And if you're one of the sucker teabaggers that showed up at these protests thinking that you were out there for freedom, man, did they pull a fast one on you.
Audible is supporting this episode, which I love because I've been using Audible for years. They have tens of thousands of titles, including audiobooks, newspapers, magazines, radio, TV, and premium podcasts. For this audience, I recommend they have the heavy hitters, My Life by Bill Clinton, The Audacity of Hope by Barack Obama, but my personal favorites are like Lies and the Lying Liars Who Tell Them, Al Franken's latest book before he became a senator, and America the Audiobook, put together by the writers of The Daily Show. As a listener of this show, you can get a free audiobook to try out this service by visiting audiblepodcast.com slash best. You have to go to that special URL, that's how they know that I sent you and that you deserve a free audiobook, audiblepodcast.com slash best. In the city of La Crosse, Wisconsin, nearly every adult has created a plan for end-of-life care. It's the sort of idea that got twisted over the summer into angry talk of death panels. At issue then was a provision in health care legislation to pay for end-of-life counseling. And that provision is included in the House bill, which passed earlier this month. NPR's Joseph Shapiro recently visited La Crosse to find out why it's often mentioned as a model for good end-of-life care that keeps costs down. Sandra Colbert is in a hospital bed with plastic tubes feeding her oxygen and IV fluids. Sandra, 67 and a retired nurse, explains that today started as just another ordinary day. I had gone over to the Y this morning. I go over there Monday through Friday to do water aerobics and do some laps. And uh, I had just unlocked my locker when it felt like my heart exploded. Someone called an ambulance. Oh, the pain was just horrendous. It was scary. I just, I thought I was going to die at that. And she ended up in this room at Gunderson Lutheran Hospital in La Crosse. Doctors a little while ago told her it wasn't a heart attack, but they want to keep her overnight for observation. She's not going to die. Still, nurses are asking her to think about dying, or more specifically, if she wants to fill out a living will. Hi, Sandra. My name is Laura Weedman, and I'm a nurse here at Gunderson Lutheran. And I understand that you're interested in um, completing an advanced care document. Yes. It might seem almost rude to ask a woman who just a few hours ago had reason to fear she was about to die, but who now knows she's okay, to think about how she does want to die someday. Yet it's a routine question in this Midwestern city on the Mississippi River from a nurse like Laura Weedman. So what you're saying then, again, are two choices. Yes, my agent has the authority to have a feeding tube or IV hydration withheld or withdrawn. Yeah. Subject to the limitations. Okay. Yeah. They're complicated questions. The specially trained nurse will spend more than an hour with Colbert and her husband, Jim, and help them both think through the treatment they'd want at the end of life. Sandra cries when she writes down that she wants each of her grandkids to speak at her funeral, but there's more laughter than tears. And I would like to have, at the end of the ceremony, put another brick in the wall. So, Pink Floyd? You bet. All right. Sandra and Jim fill out the directives and sign them in front of witnesses. Then the nurse enters them in the health system's computers. Now, any time a doctor in this large health system pulls up their records, their wishes for end-of-life care will be prominently displayed. The result of all this attention is that nearly 100% of adults who die in La Crosse, 96% of them, die with a completed advanced directive. That's by far the highest rate in the country. 
And at Gunderson Lutheran, less is spent on patients in the last two years of life than any other place in the country. Bud Hamas is the medical ethicist who started the program. It's called Respecting Choices. When people see the low cost in La Crosse, you know, there are assumptions about rationing care, about denying care, about limiting, that we limit care for our patients. Hamas says it's not that dying people in La Crosse are denied care, it's that they thought out their wishes in advance so they get exactly the care they want. And often that means avoiding excessive and unwanted care. In our community, uh, I can say that these are choices, informed choices made by patients and their families about what they perceive and what they understand to be good care for themselves. When Hamas came to Gunderson Lutheran Health System as a clinical ethicist, he often found himself called in to help families who'd suddenly found themselves in the middle of a health crisis. When I asked these family members, what would your dad want? What would your mom want? What did they say to you previously? The response was the same again and again. And the response was, if I only knew. Hamas realized the shortcoming of the common practice of handing patients a living will. People didn't fill them out. They gave up trying to figure out confusing issues like whether to withdraw a feeding tube and when. So Gunderson Lutheran started training its nurses, chaplains, and social workers, as well as ministers, lawyers, and others in the community, to help people understand and make those choices. All this is expensive. Medicare doesn't reimburse for nurses' time to do this. Hamas says it costs the hospital system millions of dollars a year. We just build it into the overhead of the organization. We believe it's part of good patient care. We believe that our patients deserve to have an opportunity, at least, to have these conversations. And that's how La Crosse unexpectedly got in the middle of the national debate over health care and the so-called death panels. There's a proposal, it's in the health bill passed by the House of Representatives, that would pay for the kind of periodic and continued end-of-life discussions with patients that are routine in La Crosse. Gunderson Lutheran is pushing for it. Hammer says the claims that there'd be government-run panels pressuring sick people to die are bizarre exaggerations and that the experience of this Wisconsin city proves it. These are conversations that we have with our patients. They're not done in a secret room. These are open conversations involving family members, pastors, attorneys. It's part of our community fabric now. It's part of how we deliver care. I think I take some pills to do stuff and then other pills to stop it. <laughs> 80-year-old Joe Hauser sits at his kitchen table and takes his morning medicines. There. All my rat poison is taken for the day. Well, for a few hours anyway. Hauser, who used to run a TV repair shop, recently found out his kidneys are failing. His doctor told him he's going to need dialysis soon. Well, yeah. I don't want to go on dialysis. <laughs> I don't want to be tied to a stupid machine for 15 hours a week. My main thing is I don't want to be a burden on anybody. I figure I'd love to live to be 150 as long as I can do stuff myself without depending on somebody else to do it for me. But once I get that I can't do nothing, I'd just as soon croak. Joe's wife, Janice, shakes her head. She wants her husband to go on dialysis. Maybe I shouldn't say that, yeah. <laughs> but I'm being optimistic about it anyway. 
See, good old Ma, she would like to keep me around here as long as possible. Well, he's right. <laughs> Who else would put my eye drops in? <laughs> so with some prodding from Janice, Joe recently talked to a nurse at Gunderson Lutheran about what it means to go on dialysis. Joe worried that once he started on dialysis, he wouldn't be able to stop. The nurse in the Respecting Choices program told him that's not so. Then the nurse invited Joe and Janice to visit the dialysis center and to drop in on a support group meeting so they can talk to other patients. Joe hasn't taken up the nurse on that. He says he still doesn't want dialysis. But then there's a surprise. He extends his left arm across the kitchen table. I'll see if you was a girl. I'd say, hey, you want to feel my buzzer? What Hauser calls his buzzer is a spot at his wrist. You can feel the vibration from an artery and a vein that a surgeon has joined together. It's called a fistula. It's interesting so, to, to feel a, a vein and an artery. It's in preparation for dialysis. It turns out that Joe Hauser's decided to be ready if he changes his mind, if he decides he wants dialysis. Then the needle of the dialysis machine can slip right into that spot the surgeon has prepared at his wrist. And that gets to the point of why doctors and patients keep talking about end-of-life care in lacrosse. Because choices are complicated. Because people's feelings change about the treatment they want. And the best way to handle that is to know all your options well in advance of a health care crisis. I know what you're thinking, but John, the bill passed the House last week, remember? Late night Saturday, Pelosi in her crimson splendor, announcing victory. Now you might be wondering, how did the House Democrats possibly pass a bill on what they have called their number one legislative priority by five whole votes when they only have a 40 vote majority? Well, truth be told, they actually needed help. The House health care bill was saved by the Stupak Amendment. No, not the Robert Ludlum thriller by the same name. And certainly not the posthumous album by legendary rapper Stupak Stakur. Rather, it was an amendment proposed by Democratic Michigan Congressman Bart Stupak, banning any new government health plan from paying for a certain completely legal, constitutionally protected medical procedure. <laughs> Can you guess which one? I'm going to write down my guess for which medical procedure. <laughs> This is a provision that imposes tough restrictions on federal funding for abortion. It was a major concession for pro-abortion rights Democrats to ensure the success of the overall health care bill. Uh, abortion. Mm. 
I had written down gallbladder and gallbladder related issues. <laughs> I didn't really write anything down. One thing about Stupak's amendment, it had true bipartisan appeal. Indiana Republican Mike Pence explained. But it's also morally wrong to take the taxpayer dollars of millions of Americans and use it to provide for a procedure that they find morally offensive. Paying taxes is like going to the zoo. Admission's 20 bucks. You can't walk in and go, here's 1850, I don't like zebras. In the Congress of the United States, we have a responsibility to respect the moral beliefs of the majority of the American people. So we must respect the moral beliefs of the majority of Americans who don't like abortion, but the majority of Americans who favor a public option can go themselves. You got the different kinds with different ways. It would take a lifetime to explain. And I won't say it. she two different people with two separate lives. And you put the two together, you get a Obama took office 10 months ago, the Democratic Party went from having 58 seats in the U.S. Senate to having 60. Democrats went from carrying 257 seats in the House to now carrying 258. And this weekend, the House grabbed the brass ring that president after president and Congress after Congress have wanted to grab and failed health reform at last. The kind of once in more than a lifetime historic achievement that could brand the Democratic Party and inspire voter loyalty for a generation. Even better for Democrats, they've done it in a way that has brought out the worst in the opposing party. The Republican House leadership last week speaking in front of a banner comparing health reform to bodies stacked up at a concentration camp. Despite reported chants of Nazis, Nazis, not a single House Republican walks off the stage in protest. The chairman of the National Republican Congressional Committee now equating medical care for women to medical care for smokers. The former House majority leader organizing the anti-health reform protests outside Congress saying Americans have too much health insurance and some who don't have it don't deserve it. Because they eat like a pig, uh, you must now insure them. And for women, the boorish behavior of Republicans against health reform has been even worse. As Democratic women in Congress tried to speak on the House floor about gender disparity in health coverage, here's the treatment they received from Republican men. I ask unanimous consent that my remarks Object. to revise my remarks. Unanimous consent to revise Object. and extend my remarks in support of the Democratic bill. Mr. Speaker, because, I object. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I ask unanimous Mr. consent Speaker, to the right to object. In terms of the political impact of health reform, this is potentially a huge generational win for the Democratic Party. Or is it? Snatching electoral defeat from the jaws of victory here, Democrats have decided to pass monumental, sweeping, legacy-building health reform 
inexplicably along with the biggest restriction on abortion rights in a generation. It's called the Stupak Amendment, named for Democratic Congressman Bart Stupak of Michigan. And if his amendment becomes law, if the bill passes as is, insurance companies across the country would likely stop covering abortions, period. Stupak's language in the House bill says that anyone who gets a government subsidy to buy insurance through the new health insurance exchange would be banned from buying any insurance plan that covers abortion services. So if you're an insurance company that wants to participate in the new health insurance exchange, if you want access to this new pool of millions of Americans, tens of millions of Americans, choosing between insurance plans on the exchange, well, the CBO says about 90% of those people will be getting some kind of government subsidy in the exchange. And if they're getting any sort of government subsidy, they can't even choose your insurance plan if they want to, unless you drop abortion coverage. The effect of this law isn't just no federal funding for abortions. That's the law now. The effect of this law is likely to be no insurance coverage for abortion in the United States, period. With a single amendment, Congress is making a legal medical procedure potentially unattainable for a huge number of American women. All that conservative talk about the evil government getting involved in which medical procedures are covered and which aren't, it's conservatives who now, from Congress, are ruling out coverage nationally for one specific medical procedure for political reasons. Congressman Stupak apparently got this language into the bill by promising lots and lots of conservative Democratic votes for health reform. And what he got was lots and lots of conservative Democrats, 26 of whom voted for his anti-abortion amendment, but then against the health reform bill anyway. In response to the Stupak Amendment passing, 41 House Democrats have now said in writing that they won't vote for any final health reform bill that includes Stupak's language in it or anything like that. Meanwhile, as a health reform vote approaches in the Senate, even supposedly pro-choice Democrats are now signaling that they're okay with the Stupak Amendment. We're talking about whether or not people that get public money can buy an insurance policy that has any coverage for abortion. And that is not the majority of America. The majority of America is not going to be getting subsidies from the government. And so I'm not sure that this is going to be enough to kill the bill. Yeah, I mean, we're only effectively banning abortion for people who get subsidies, people making less than $88,000 a year. Who cares about anybody making less than $88,000 a year, right? This apparent lack of concern among supposedly pro-choice Democrats is made all the more relevant given the news tonight that a pair of anti-choice Senate Democrats are already preparing similar language as what's in the House bill for the Senate version. And Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, the man ultimately responsible for whether the anti-abortion language goes in or stays out, he doesn't exactly have a great record on supporting abortion rights. Senator Reid is personally against abortion rights, and the National Abortion Rights Action League gave Senator Reid a whopping 20% voting rating last year. The White House, for its part, has shifted its position on this issue as the day has gone on. While White House Press Secretary Robert Gibbs hedged earlier in the day on the issue, President Obama told ABC News tonight, quote, I want to make sure that the provision that emerges isn't restricting women's insurance choices. There needs to be some more work before we get to the point where we're not changing the status quo. Democrats not only want to pass health reform because they're interested in the policy change, but also because it is supposed to come with a lot of electoral spoils, leaving us to wonder what the electoral spoils will be for Democrats if they don't get women or anybody who's pro-choice to ever vote for them ever again.
Thanks for listening, everybody. Okay, just a quick house cleaning before we get on to the promised huge news. Of course, I've been promising huge news and delivering, by the way. Uh, I just checked the last five episodes. Well, I guess the last four episodes. This will be the fifth episode in a row packed with huge news at the end. Uh, so we'll get to that in just a moment. Of course, I want to mention um, really quick that the podcast awards are still going on. Of course, I don't get to talk to you every day, so I have to remind you that you can vote every day, even when you don't hear me talking about it. Even if you voted before, vote again and again and again once every day at podcastawards.com between now and the end of November. Believe me, I know it's a marathon. I know it starts to wear on you, but I only do this once a year. Podcast Awards are once a year. The, the Young Turks, seriously, the Young Turks cavalry has arrived. They have been promoting to their audience of course, not only to vote for them in the political category, but also they're encouraging their listeners to vote for us, best of the left, for the best produced category. We have a serious chance of winning, uh, you know, between the two of us, all of our uh, uh, people getting involved. So fear not, this is not a, a futile cause. So head over there uh, today and every day and keep those votes coming. Secondly, I want to mention, of course, the, uh, the iPhone application. It's available uh, through the iTunes store. Get it, download it, um, all sorts of great features besides uh, being able to listen to any episode in the archives without it taking up room on your on your device there. Uh, of course, the, the great benefit is there's bonus content, usually video content, and today the video content is from the Young Turks. They're doing another clip on uh, on healthcare, obviously, to, to fit with the theme, and they... Um, dive into some of the lies told on Fox News that Glenn Beck had a, a guest host come in and he spewed some out-of-this-world stuff about the proposed health care bill and then, of course, they proceeded to tear it to shreds. So if you, of course, if you're a member, you already got that in the Best of the Left raw feed. If you have the application or want to get it, that'll be the bonus content for this episode. Okay, so now on to the promised big news. Let's, let's just reflect for a minute, because this is amazing. Five shows in a row having big news. You know, first we had the launch of the, the brand new iPhone and iPod Touch application. Then we announced the kind of goofy thing that uh, the show was now in stereo, which of course it should have been for a long time now, but it wasn't. And I fixed it, so hooray for everyone. The show sounds better now. Big news that I met the governor of Maryland and had an interaction with him, which was fun. Big announcement in the last show was that I'm going to Copenhagen for the international climate negotiations and will be, of course, coming back and telling stories about that. And now we come to today's announcement. And the story of today's announcement actually starts a couple of years ago. I, I didn't, I don't know when exactly, but I was asked in an email how many listeners this show had. And, you know, I'd basically just started the show. It had been going, you know, a few months, maybe six months, something like that. And I can, I'll, I didn't say then, but I can say now, at the time, we had about 2,000 listeners. A nice, you know, a nice healthy listenership for, for a show that had, you know, essentially just started. Um, but, you know, it was climbing slowly. I didn't really know. I didn't have anything to compare it to. I didn't know if I was doing really well or really poorly. Um, I knew I wasn't like hitting the tops of any charts or anything like that. And so I thought, well, I just, I don't feel like bragging about it. Cause I don't know, maybe I should be embarrassed. I don't know. Um, but I said, you know what? I tell you what, 
Um, I, I won't I won't tell you what the listenership is now, but I will tell you when we hit ten thousand. So here we are. I get to officially say. I mean, it's, man, it's been a long slog, and uh, it was a slow climb for a long time. But uh, officially, now, the conservative estimate, because there's lots of ways to slice and dice the, the statistics. Just trust me. But I'm, I'm saying now, the conservative estimate is that we've reached that 10,000 threshold. If you, if you wanted to stretch the numbers, you could say we did it a little while ago. But I'm saying, conservatively... We're officially there. I'm calling it. So there you go. Exciting news for everyone. And uh, in all likelihood, you won't ever hear me talk about listenership numbers again. Okay, now uh, one more substantive point of the day. I wanted to respond to a couple of uh, reviews in iTunes, and you'll you'll see why. Uh, the first came from someone really recently, just a couple of days ago. And, you know, they wrote a nice big paragraph in there talking about how they like the show. And the only they, they they wrote their only request is that the host of the show gets in contact with them so that they can make a logo for the show, and they didn't give any other explanation than that because I, I mean I assume they know we already have a logo. Um, I don't know if they want to make another one because they feel they could do better. And then the other point is that they didn't leave any way to contact them, and they didn't actually contact me directly. They just left a review there and so for all of you out there i don't get your contact information when you leave reviews in itunes so i'll just put that out there if someone out there is uh, looking to help out the show by making us an awesome logo you just gotta send me an email and and we'll chat about it secondly i think you know lots of people write in and talk about how they like the show and that's great you know i i agree with what they say but Every once in a while, someone writes in with some constructive criticism, and, you know, I'll either agree or disagree or whatever, but this time, I got some constructive criticism that I don't think I've ever agreed with anything more in my entire life, and their entire quote here, their entire comment, verbatim, reads, the show would be better if it were narrated by Christopher Walken. And frankly, nothing more needs to be said than that. Be, I mean, why elaborate? That that makes the point exactly right, and no truer thing has ever been said. This show would be much better, I entirely agree, if it were narrated by Christopher Walken. But nonetheless, I, I absolutely appreciate the, the feedback on that and, and the comment, because, I mean, I hadn't thought of that before myself, but it's one of those things that you don't you don't realize you agree with it until you hear someone else say it. Okay, and so finally, I just want to thank a couple of members. Uh, Michael N. signed up. Uh, both of these just were just within the last couple of days. Um, Michael N. signed up on November 14th. And I want to mention him because he signed up above and beyond the minimum amount and did a year's membership in advance, which is just amazingly awesome that, uh, that you want to support the show for a whole year. And then Ian N. signed up even more recently on November 16th. And signed up above and beyond and, you know, just a very generous uh, member signed up. And um, so obviously everyone here listening understands if you want to give a little bit more to the show, you're going to get a little bit more gratitude, obviously. And so I want to point those guys out right away and, and just thank them on the show for their generous contributions. Members are, of course, what keep the show going and 
if you want to give a little more, you're helping a little bit more, and everyone appreciates that. So that is it for today. Of course, you can support the show tremendously just by telling five friends about it, get them interested in the show. Uh, you can become a member yourself for as little as just a little bit less than five bucks a month, and you know you're helping the show, and you get access to the Best of Left Raw feed, you get all the clips that are in the show, plus a bunch of extra stuff that never makes the final cut, and almost, you know, about three quarters of all that stuff is delivered in video form, so you get to watch it on your iPod or whatever, and um, actually see the action instead of just hearing it. And then, of course, you can also uh, please leave five-star reviews in iTunes and vote, vote, vote in the Podcast Awards at podcastawards.com. Stay connected to the show between episodes at uh, twitter.com slash bestofleft and facebook.com slash bestofleft. I do my best to post updates there, you know, about the show, behind the scenes, etc. Clips I find, articles I read, all that great stuff I try to post. So it's another great way to stay informed. And then for details on this episode or any of them, uh, links to the music and sources used in the show can be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast delivered to you every Wednesday and every weekend, thanks to the members and donors from bestoftheleft.com. Fine, fine, black and Just a fun friend.